The old man laid a withered, spotted hand on his shoulder. It hurts, boy, he said softly. Oh, yes, choosing. It has always hurt, and always will, I know. Hello, and welcome to 2C1C, a Game of Thrones living card game podcast founded in 2010 by myself, Will Lentz, Greg Atkinson, and Brad Zeiler. These days, my co-hosts may differ, but we're generally pulling from at least some familiar core of voices. Many thanks go out to Fantasy Flight Games, George R. Martin, Card Game DB, and Josh Woodward for the CC licensed music you're hearing now. This is Season 5. It's a pretty apropos quote for the uh, news of this past week, huh? Yeah, yeah, I thought so. I specifically picked it because I thought it had some bearing on that. I dig it. Well done. (laughs) You're welcome. And you too, listeners. You're all welcome. Hi, I'm Aaron. I'm Will. Tommy. I'm Greg. What? And this is episode, geez, what are we, 204? I don't know. I stopped counting at 200. (laughs) Yeah, probably a good idea. Are all of you in the 2.0 tournament? Uh, I am. I am. I got denied... Uh, my wife got in, and I did not, and so she, our, our only guess is that she had to have been the last person to get in, because we were obviously both on the same, uh, cart, and oh, wow. so she, yeah, wow. yes. I could not, could not believe it, and so we went out to lunch with the family, came back, and I was like, oh, I'll just check in case maybe they opened up more seats, whatever, and then, miraculously, there's two more seats there, and so I snagged it immediately, Later on, I see on Agat Cards, there's a whole thread about how, oh, two seats just popped up. Quick, get on there and get them. And I'm like, well, guess I already got one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I did not get in. Huh. But as a former world champion, can't you just be like, I'm in now? Um, For Worlds, yes. For 2.0, no. Wow. You should email them and just try. Well, I uh, I I have a sneaking suspicion I'll be playing in that event. So there you go. I mean, just <laughs> just get, walk around screaming, "I'm the Greg Atkinson." <laughs> Eventually, perhaps you've seen my agenda. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you said you've seen my agenda because saying "Have you seen my flea bottom?" sounds a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, does it! So for those, well, I I do hope that they expand the field. When you sell out a specific event in an hour and a half, nope, um, well, not even that really. Well, then yeah. you know the, the the demand is so high, you need to expand it. You know, Absolutely. it's one of those supply and demand things that you know it. You 
I don't know. In my mind, I understand that there might be some choke points they have no control over, like maybe they will only have so much product available. Maybe Gen Con has only allotted them so much seating, you know, so on and so forth. But if there is any way to expand that field, they need to. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing they want to do is on the the launch of what's going to be a flagship game for them, leave a bad taste in people's mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to Alex Hines as everything was selling out immediately, and I feel like what I said to Alex really has a bearing on Will, too. Uh, the size of your pond just got way bigger. Pond? Uh, listenership? It, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. The, the, the fish in the pond. You were a very big fish in a very small pond, and this pond is going to be huge. We can only hope. We'll see. I think a good portion of the 200 that sold out that fast are people that want a copy that will not be playing. Um, so I don't know. It. I'm sure it is definitely going to be larger than the last uh, couple launch events for different games, but I'm not sure how much larger actual attendance will be. Even if that tournament's not that much bigger, I think this game is going to be humongous. I think this will I, easily be the I hope so, I think. My question to FFG, like you guys mentioned the possibility of people buying, uh, you know, a ticket just to get the core set without playing. Yeah. And while I understand someone might have that mindset, I really hope that FFG comes with, maybe unlimited isn't the right word, but they come with such a supply of those I mean, if I'm FFG, I want to come with a nearly unlimited supply anyways, because every core set you sell at Gen Con, your profit margin is extremely higher than what you sell when you're moving it to a distributor. Okay? and It, it is, but there's kind of an intangible benefit to saying, hey, come buy you know, our Game of Thrones 2.0 that sold out at Gen Con, both its launch oh. event and every single copy we brought. Oh, you can still do that. Just leave all your extra copies in a hotel room, and each day refill the uh, refill the um, the center, uh, the exhibitors hall with new ones. You know, from what's sitting in the hotel room. Then, oh look, we sold out on Sunday. So, I, I don't know. I, I I really think it's in their best benefit to you know bring just oodles and oodles and oodles of them. Well, I think they could take a, a cue from what AEG did with Doomtown last year, and they allowed you to pre-order, so they would bring one for you, and it would be sitting there on site whether you were playing in a tournament or not. You know, That's then you'd you'd alleviate the people trying to do it just for the tournament to get their core set. You'd leave those seats open for people who really want to play, but you'd also ensure that everyone would get theirs, whether they were able to charge the booth or not. It's oh, a really good idea. Actually, that is a good idea. Yeah. Hey, FFG, listen up. (laughs) Do this thing. On to Worlds. Ooh, boy, who wants to kick us off with the Worlds discussion? It's a doozy this year. FFG, in the midst of the Gen Con hubbub, just uh, dropped a bit of a grenade here in the community with uh, the announcement of their plans for the 2015 World Championships. Five days. Before we, Four of Thrones. Yeah, before we get into sharing our opinions, let's just do our best to brainstorm all the different things we've heard about it. There are two primary, you know, locations for facts. One is the interview, or excuse me, one is the 
article that FFG released with the announcement. And then the second is the interview that Team Covenant conducted with Steve Horvath, where they, you know, asked a few follow-up questions and we got some answers. So, you know, I think, you know, short of us reading the article, you know, let's just throw out all the all the changes and differences and announcements. Okay, well, first and foremost, uh, it goes Wednesday to Sunday. Wednesday yep. is No Thrones. However, Tuesday, they're doing... Uh, that's, well, not, no, that's, that's, that's not, not, not correct. Wait, Wednesday is what, Thrones? Draft. draft. Oh, that's the draft. Oh, shit. All that's, right, sorry. That's part of draft. I, I have more to bring up uh, later in question to the schedule that I opened up as we started podcasting, but we can dive into my confusion there in a little bit. So wait, we have every single day Thrones? Yep. Okay, Aaron doesn't know facts. Let's move on to someone else. <laughs> okay, so I've got the schedule in front of me. Mm-hmm. Wednesday, November 4th, there's the draft at noon. That is listed specifically as the preliminaries of the draft world championship. So I guess they heeded the I'm, request that we have draft as part of the world championships. They did, but I guess if we're here at this point, I might as well already follow up then with my confusion I don't see Game of Thrones Draft World Championship finals anywhere, or top however many. The finals were on Sunday, weren't they? On the schedule I am currently looking at, that I opened right before we started podcasting, the only Sunday events are 10 a.m. Android Netrunner Top 16 Elimination, and 11 a.m. Imperial Assault Skirmish World Championship Top 16 Elimination. Uh, I saw a different schedule than you that had four Sunday events. I gotta tell you, I agree with Greg. I think that I saw a top 16 of Thrones draft on Sunday as well. Maybe they changed it. Yeah, it was. That's, that's what I'm starting to, to wonder. And that's why I wanted to make sure I pulled up the most recent one. Um, since it was so weird to have that event split between day one and day five. So. Yeah. I really hope that they are just no longer splitting it and they're running the entire championship on Wednesday. Or if they do split it, they work some other magic to rearrange things, so it's just the very next day. Yeah, you know, I think I wouldn't be surprised. We are still six months away, or almost a little less than six months away from Worlds, that they have the option to make slight modifications here. They're based on player feedback. And if they're already getting some blowback on a few things, they might just say, hey, this is easy to change. So we'll see uh, let's just continue on with the schedule for now. Then, yeah. what, what? At least what we see printed right now. Wait, but there is something Tuesday night that we don't want to forget. Oh, sure. Tuesday night, they, it was revealed that they will be doing the state of the game uh, organized play, like they did last year. Yes, considering the bombshell right. that was last year, that's definitely something we want to pay attention to. Yeah, well, I'm sure there won't be another bombshell. Three point <laughs> Yeah, it'll probably be a little more tame. But anyway, Thursday, November 5th, uh, the Thrones Joust World Championship starts at 10. Ooh. Friday at 10 is the Melee World Championship. Saturday, there are currently no events listed on the schedule, though there was the addendum article listing the 2.0 event. That would be the only registration side event. It's not yeah. considered a world championship, They're but it will have a card design up for grabs. The War of the Five and Kings, right? Correct. I like and that they're right now fun names. For yeah. And as of right now, Sunday has no events listed on this most recent schedule. So I really want them to flip Thursday and Friday. Yeah, yeah. I have they did they specify whether they were or officially were not having an overall champion 
they did I've not heard any yeah, that, that worries me. As we've learned uh, at regionals here, if you are having an overall champion um, holding the joust before the melee, colors people's actions in melee uh, later, depending on who they are paired up against and how they did the prior day. Absolutely. Uh, and well, so if if they did away with the overall, this is fine, I suppose. Uh, but okay. if they did not, so they need to switch it. It's not fine. A lot of people don't like melee. You're basically no. making them be there an extra day. Uh, okay, guys, hold on. Let me explain why this is happening, because I don't think... I, I'm not sure most of our listeners are going to understand this, and I thought we were going to get into the facts and then share opinions, but let me share a story and then share an opinion, and we'll understand why this is happening. Last year, as, as I talked about, I was a little bit of a jerk face at Worlds. I had pre-registered... They had apparently sent out an email that whether I got it or didn't get it, there's a good chance I got it and didn't realize I was supposed to respond that said, tell us which events you're going to run. Well, I didn't respond to the email. I show up and they're like, well, you didn't respond to the email and that means you're not guaranteed a seat in the events you want to play. And I was like, what? And so I basically did exactly what you said. I walked around saying, I'm in Greg Atkinson. I was all pissed off. I was mad, whatever. Okay, and eventually, and you know, one FFG employee told me, said, look, it's a fire code issue. We can only have so many people in this room at one time. Okay, that made sense to me. Well, I had another FFG employee come up to me a little later and say, we're going to do our best to make this work. I put you at the top of the list. Wow, that made me feel all nice and special. Then I'm like, wait a second. So I just jumped a bunch of people, and he's like, yeah, and I'm like, oh, okay. I don't, I'm not interested in getting in if these other people aren't getting in either. And they made it right and they, everyone got in. Okay. So, you know, kudos to FFG. They made it work. But that fact is still true. There is a fire code issue and it's based on attendance. One of the reasons why FFG went to five days is they made the choice that they were going to leave worlds in their convention center. And they have, one of the announcements we haven't mentioned is they have put specific caps of attendees on specific events. And what they've done is, and this is a little bit of this is assumption, is they've taken past attendances. Steve Horvath said in his interview with Team Covenant that they bumped up the numbers for each of the individual events. And I think that what they've done is they put caps on each of the events. And then what they do is they have to balance it. And they have to say, okay, X-Wing, we put a cap of 150. Netrunner, we put a cap of 260. And then they have to balance all those numbers in a way that, okay, two, or Wednesday, 500 max. Thursday, 500 max. Friday, 500 max. Saturday, 500 max. Sunday, you know, so on and so forth. So I get that. But there's a problem with that. Like, if you... A lot of people didn't show up for Thrones Melee, but did for Joust, because A, they prefer Joust, and B, it was a day later, and you have to miss less work. If you really want to make a Joust, and you're then going to have to miss work for that to be there anyway, you're probably, even me, who hates Melee, going to end up doing Melee just because you're there. So all you're going to get more attendance for Melee that way. You're going to end up either locking more people out or okay. severely skewing things. You are assuming that more attendance is an option. I'm assuming, and FFG has to assume for fire code issues, that whatever cap they put on every event is going to be met. Okay, so Greg, I totally agree. If you're looking at the schedule in a vacuum, it seems that way because they've split up Thrones, Joust, Warhammer 40k, and Netrunner. They're all on different days, which are going to be heavily attended events, especially X-Wing, and they put that all the way on Wednesday. 
But if you look at Saturday now, they've got Netrunner's preliminaries, which is probably going to be the biggest card game event of the weekend. And they're then throwing that on the same day as the 2.0 that they've announced. Well, the 2.0 is interesting because I'm not 100% convinced they're going to have it in the main convention hall. Yeah, Because I'm of being the late edition, there's a good chance it was not initially factored in. Now, I again, this is all assumption on my part. I there I have no secret information, you know, but I based on my experience and based on what they've announced so far and reading between the lines, you know, this is a this is a and a fire code issue related to how many people they can have in the room each day. And when we get a a day or two later announcement that, oh, hey, there actually will be a 2.0 event that is the only non, you know, world championship event, you know, it sounds like one of those, oh, wait a second, we made a quick mistake, let's try and remedy it, and I would not be surprised for it to be held elsewhere. I'm sure it'll be in the overflow area. I I think all of the side events will be there like they were last year. Well, this uh, is the only side event. No, no, no. They they did say that there will be other side events during the weekend, but the others are just first come ser- first served. No registration necessary for them. Right. Oh, okay. But that's another major change, right? Like you have to register now. If you don't register, you are not guaranteed a seat. They're counting the numbers before. It's not guaranteed. You're not allowed in at all. Right. They specifically said you cannot walk up even if there are empty seats. So I, you know, I think that that's, that's a big one. And, and since we didn't end up doing what I said, which is brainstorming all the facts about it, I think we should just go ahead and discuss this one, you know, because it's not just that you have to pre-register if you want to be an entrant in any events at world championships. You have to pre-register in a month. And for, you know, another, another note about this is they are giving an option for all past world champions. And hey, I'm one. Hey, this should be awesome, right? They get to register a week early to guarantee themselves a spot in whatever events they want to play. Seems like that'd be awesome. Okay. Well, other than the fact that I'm not a big fan on special privilege, particularly if it means someone else doesn't get to play, you know, I now have to make a decision three weeks from now whether I am going to go to Worlds for four days and I have to make this decision in three weeks. And for me personally, that's a problem. I've got, you know, I'm a, a father of four kids. They're in school during that time. I was, I was, you know, hoping I could go and take those three days, but now I've got to figure out another day with my kids. You know, what am I going to do when I'm gone? It's another day away from work where maybe I hadn't planned on it, which personally I had not. I will not have a vacation day for that. So that's another day of lost pay, another day of hotel. And I've got to make this decision in three weeks whether I'm going to go for this extended world championship weekend in November. And my question is, is if they want to do pre-reg, I can understand some of their reasons. Hey, they're giving out shirts. They want to make sure they have time to order the shirts. Hey, you know, they're going to be giving away gift bags. They need to make sure they order enough of all the swag that they're putting in these swag bags. Okay. So on and so forth. But is it necessary that it happens before Gen Con? I mean, why do we need to pre-register now? Why couldn't pre-registration happen in August or September? I don't get it. Hopefully we get an answer from them for them. Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, they want an awful lot of, of lead time there. And, hey, you know, 
I don't know how many of you guys get into the time value of money, but if you are pre-registering, that likely means you're paying. So you are paying for something in June that you will not be using until November. So, you know, the, and for those that haven't looked, it's more expensive this year. You are paying, you know, basically a blanket fee to get in. And then depending on the number of events you want to play in, you pay incremental increased costs. So if you want a four event badge, you will pay $90. Well, unless okay. you're a former world champ, I think in uh, Steve's interview, he said that the world champs uh, got in for free. No, he's no. just, no, he's just an no. international national championship. Yeah, the ones that win this year. Yeah. Current. Just if that. You, I'm, if you won a I'm national just going to have to listen to that again then. I could have sworn he'd said that the world champs past did, but the regional champs no. just got the reservation. No. But national. No, I, I did specifically listen to that part, Will, and he said the national champs from this year. Okay. Yeah. Also, you can get in still paying but early by winning a regional, which makes the date really weird because you could win a regional after that date. Right. Yeah. Or or getting top four at Gen Con, which is way after that date. Well, they are reserving a certain number of seats based on that quantity of people. Right. And well, August seventeenth, I think. Yeah, so but that puts you in a weird boat. Let's let's say everyone who goes to Gen Con hypothetically hopes that they will win and get a you know a free entry or entry into this thing. So are they going to refund? You know, how does that work? If someone actually prepays, you know, pre-registers and now they win Gen Con and so that means they get a free entry. I, I guess they'll get a refund. Um, I, I guess I still have a lot of questions that need to be answered. That was one of the weirdest things to me is what what are they going to do when somebody wins one of these events and has already registered? But in fairness, this wasn't a formal announcement. This was something said during an interview. So perhaps when they – I'm assuming they're going to give us a press release with all this information. They usually do. Um, so that article could just answer all of our current questions. Well, but it did say firmly in the article they posted with the schedule that it was June 15th for yeah. registration. Yes. Right. Yeah, for me it's June 8th for, or for past world championships, past world champions of any game it's June 8th. Everyone else it's June 15th. Then they have this mini open period after, so, so basically they've reserved a number of seats for nationals and regional champions and those people can register. And then if any of those people don't register, the open registration briefly opens back up for those last few seats that weren't picked up by people they had reserved it for. So um, so there will potentially be a few stragglers left there at the end. Um, so, uh, yeah. Well, at least you get some more stuff with your pre-registration. Like, there's going to be lots yeah. of participation prizes. You get a T-shirt. You get a uh, deck box that has Which, all the promo all art cards in it. That's the one thing you can say that is the best about this entire setup, is that hopefully it'll remove a lot of the you know, swag hunters that are just going, sitting down, dropping, and leaving as soon as they get their promo. Right, which is an issue, I think, that caused uh, some of the attorneys to hit those caps in the past and caused the waiting lists because of the people that went ahead and registered just to grab the swag. Right. So now yeah, that, we don't have to deal with that, hopefully. I agree. There And there's there's another rule that they implemented related to swag, which is, you get the swag bag as an entrant to the overall, you know, world championship weekend. Then 
if you participate in any of the events and do not drop through the entirety of the Swiss rounds. So you play all the Swiss rounds, at least in the card games. I don't know about any of the miniature games. You also get two more copies of that particular alternate art card that was that you already got one copy in the swag bag. So pretty pretty much there's no incentive now, none, to enter a tournament, get anything and drop, because you're not going to get anything. You'll get one for entering the overall championship weekend, and then you'll get two more if you finish out the Swiss rounds. Which seems like a good setup. Yes, that that is actually one of my favorite things about this, is they are incentivizing... You know, let's, let's play for real people. You know, let's not just, you know, let's not just grab a couple of alternate art cards you want to turn around and sell for a few bucks. You know, let's play for real. Uh, if you win worlds for any event, you're also going to get a bunch of swag for your store. Mm-hmm. They seem to be in- encouraging team play for worlds, which, you know, DC has been doing for years, but the rest of us generally don't to the same extent. But they want it to be, you know, metas against each other nowadays, so. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, actually, stores get a plaque. They get all of their um, tourney kits and a potential regional kit. If they, um, you know, qualify for a regional, they will get all those free for that year. Pretty sweet. Is there any other world stuff? Because there were another couple of announcements in that interview. Um, specifically worlds related, I, I don't think so. But there was definitely part of that in interview that still kind of kind of bugs me um go for it but it may be what it almost certainly is one of the things that you were going to bring up and that's that uh ffg continues to refuse to implement a rating system again uh or ranking system depending on what oh really that bothers you oh yeah I, I am so glad we don't have one really i i miss one i i enjoyed both the ranking system we had at one point and the rating system we had um the the point totals or elo that stuff doesn't make too much of a difference to me in the end but i i really enjoyed it. in fact that when i got started with the game as a ccg that was one of the things that helped hook me was being able to get into the site and uh, and actually look at that stuff and compare with friends and see, you know, as I moved up, how I was, you know, in comparison to the rest of the nation and such. Yeah, I in my mind, it just adds too much of a competitive nature to the casual tournament scene, um, just in the sense that, you know, getting together on you know, Saturday nights, which, or whatever nights any particular group does, if they're going to have these tournaments now, you know, they have to record them, they have to submit them, I mean, and now it's like... Unless they just can, don't. That's the, but, like, you, right, the idea that was discussed wasn't that, like, you have to submit anything for your game night. You'd ha- It would be specifically for FFG-sanctioned tournaments rankings that was asked about. And I feel like that would be really cool. Like I don't need Yeah, but Steve unequivocally said there would be no rankings for that. Yeah. yeah. It would just be, hey, this guy won a tournament or this which annoys me as as someone that frequently like makes a cut but doesn't win, like I like the overall ranking system as a way to show some type of reward or equivalent for that. But if it's just a binary Yes, he won, or no, he didn't, or she. I don't want to be too gender biased. 
you know, that is a bit of a letdown. I, I think for me, one of the things is, is that it can also diminish your world championships in the sense that if you do have someone come from nowhere, someone who does not have a high rating system or ranking or whatever you want to call it, you know, maybe they are middle of the pack in the field of 150. They're like, you know, the, the 2000th rated person in the world, whatever it happens to be. Right. And then they come and they win this tournament and everyone just kind of poo-poos it. Oh, you know what? He just got lucky that day. He's not really that good of a player. Look at his system. You think that doesn't happen now? No, it does, but it'll take that to a whole new level. It'll take that to a level of completely diminishing any value Will to it? winning a championship. Oh, I, I mean, completely. Greg, you played in the, the CCG with me. We had a rating system for, what, seven years? Six, we had two different like ones. That? Yeah. Right, right. I know. We, we had different ones. But during those years, was that ever an issue? I don't, I seriously do not remember anybody ever saying that, uh, you know, like, because you came out of nowhere and you weren't one of the top-rated guys beforehand, for instance. Oh, really? Oh, I don't. Will, I your really memory don't. is very faulty. If the, if it look, if FFG doesn't do it, ultimately this is just going to become a feature that's going to end up being added to something like the annals, and it'll be player run like everything else that's popular demand. Yeah, me personally, I really do not care. I have no interest in it, and I was kind of surprised it was asked, or I mean. I was not surprised by Steve Horvath's answer because everything I've heard for every second of the LCG era and Thrones has been, this will not happen, this will not happen, this will not happen. It's still, I don't know, it just surprises me because the system like that is something that for the players that do want it, and obviously players do if they keep asking about it, like then they can keep track of it. And the players that don't care about it don't have to go look at it. You know, what is FFG trying to accomplish with their organized play, particularly these big events? And, you know, the theme that we have seen throughout the majority of the LCG life has been a theme of, you know, we're doing organized play, but we're really kind of doing it at a minimum. You know, we, we, we don't, we don't throw out big prize. I mean, prizes at tournaments are going to be swag. You know, there will never be money. We don't want money chasers coming to our tournaments, you know. And, you know, we understand that there are competitive players that want to play this, and we're giving them this opportunity for competitive play. But all of our prizes are going to be swag and pride related, you know. So It also um, means in that way you only reward players that have the time, money, means, what have you. To travel to those events, a rating or ranking system gives you the opportunity to reward players that maybe don't have that opportunity. Well, okay, but also this, like, let's, I'm a very Jamie player, but occasionally I'll just bring a completely janky deck to a tournament because, like, sometimes I just don't have the time or energy to really care. I, a rank, with a ranking system, doing so would be absolutely a negative to me, right? Well, so yeah, like this al- this allows you to have more fun. Casual nights, for sure. Right, but I like bringing that to tournaments sometimes. Like, sometimes I just like to see how this... Like, last year at a New York Regional, I played a Viserys Attachment deck. I couldn't... I, that, I would not do that with a player ranking system. I think some of that fun should be there. I think I'm on Greg's side on this. I don't know. I can see both ways. 
I I think we're going to end up with something like it, and I really think it'll just be player run, so I don't really need a 50 to do it. We are also getting new tournament software and a judge program. Yeah. Wasn't the tournament software originally announced that it would be out in time for regionals? Yes. Um, we were supposed to beta test it at our regional, and it sort of crashed. Or didn't sort of crash, it completely crashed. <laughs> so, uh, yes, it exists. It's out there. Stores are being sent it to help test and figure out and work out bugs. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that because I'm kind of tired of playing the same people in tournaments over and over again because of the weird alphabetic or I, I don't really know how the pairing system works, although it always felt it, like there was a strong alphabet theme to it. So. It folds oh, the alphabet in half. Yeah. So I constantly get paired, for whatever reason, G gets paired with F. And that means I get Struhal and Stroms all the goddamn time, and really, no, thanks. <laughs> yep, we get we got so annoyed with it in Chicago that we just started using chess software. To be honest with you, yeah, that's that's reasonable. We generally our events are at the uh, at the small enough point that it's not inconceivable to still run them by hand. Uh, so we've definitely done that. Um, I meta a lot of times will run stuff through DCI Reporter, which admittedly doesn't handle things like tiebreakers the same way, but you do what you got to do. And any thoughts on a judge program? I liked the sound of it. I liked that uh, Steve mentioned in passing uh, actually having to get certification. Uh, that's something I've always been a little jealous of with... Uh, the magic organized play like judge program where there's actually you know different levels and you have to test out to be able to hold an event at a certain level um and yeah i I think just broader consistency on that will only be better for organized play i think they should just fly k tom all around the world for tournaments i think that's (laughs) also reasonable i think he should get a solid salary for that oh no he should do it for free oh well then, you know one of the one of the things I'd like to discuss here is the nature of how FFG went about solving the attendance problem. And you know, obviously, anyone who went last year, everyone will agree. You'll raise your hand and say, "Yes, it was too crowded. It was a problem. Yeah. It was hard, you know, to get in and out. There, it was just a a crowded mess." And it's unfortunate because they built this new convention center just a few years ago. And, I mean, they've already outgrown it, I guess, in a way that's actually fortunate. I mean, that's a good thing to be seeing this sort of growth, right? And they recognize, as I discussed earlier, you know, their seating capacity on a, you know, day-by-day basis in there. And so they said, well, you know, if we want to increase the numbers for individual events and make sure that we still have, you know, uh, you know, a, an opportunity for growth relative to the previous year. We, you know, we really have two options. You know, we either add a day to the event or we hold it somewhere else. And while I don't blame them for their decision, because if I'm a business, I'm in the business of making money and, you know, they're going to want to hold their events at the convention center because it's already a sunk cost that they've paid for. And going and holding it somewhere else, you're going to be paying tens and thousands of dollars for, you know, four or five days worth of renting out, you know, capacity for a thousand people or whatever it is, you know, um, as well as the, you know, food profits that they make from people buying a minimum of two meals at their, you know, food center there. If, <laughs> and drinks. 
Yeah, and drinks. I mean, there's a lot of profit there as well. Uh, so I don't blame them for the decision, but I do feel like it was a self-serving decision. I mean, if if I hear them say that this helps the players have the best experience possible, you know, one more time, I'm kind of kind of barf on that. You know, it what it does is it helps them make the most money this year on it. But you know, I, I'm not convinced that opening up registration, you know, to a wider number of people and leaving it as a four day event and moving it to a larger convention center that can house everyone, you know, wouldn't have been better for the player base. Um, I can't say that with assurance, but I will say this and I, I reserve the right to change my mind a little bit, but if they sell out capacity to each of their events within a few days, I will guarantee you the right decision for the player base would have been to move this to a convention center with larger capacity. Yeah. I, the, the way it continues to grow, uh, year after year, I, I agree completely. Um, I think it's only a matter of time and the time may already be here. The FFG just needs to admit that this needs to be like, FFG con or something like that and just embrace the fact that it's growing like that. I mean, they're capping themselves otherwise. Beyond, lim- beyond the limit in how interested people get, I'm extremely uncomfortable with taking two days off of work to go play card games. Like, I'm, there's no way in hell I'm taking three days off of work to go play card games. But like, imagine how many other people just aren't able to do that. And they're just shooting themselves in the foot. Well, the, I think that's to your point exactly that not everybody has the capability. Yeah, to yeah. Take the you, dates. Just, you just don't. And yeah, it's it, it's gonna be a problem. And I think extending the days of the event is not the right decision for the player base. I just don't think it is. You know, now maybe it actually drives down attendance enough that they don't hit the caps. I don't think that's going to be the case. I still think that they're going to hit attendance caps, but we'll see. And, you know, if I'm wrong, I'll admit I'm wrong, and I will say, look, they didn't hit attendance caps, you know, then so be it. You know, it works out okay. But See, but I think that you're right that if they don't hit the attendance caps, it's not a matter of there not being interest enough. It's a matter of it being too inconvenient. Yeah, and we already know a lot of the, like, LCG demographic skews older than, you know, that are out there playing the, the CCGs in general. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's older people have kids, they have quote, real jobs, uh, and, end quote. And, you know, that makes these type of events all the trickier to schedule. Uh, you know, well, I, I think they have, I think they have options, right? I mean, they'd still be able to utilize their convention center space that they built, and then they could rent, you know, convention accommodations or ballrooms or whatever from the hotel right there. You know, there's there's things that they could do to expand their space and capacity for people without, you know, abandoning their investment. Um, and that's that's actually very true, and the problem with that is it just takes a lot of planning. But wait, oh yeah, isn't it? Is this specifically a Thrones problem? Because we're the one group that has to have more than a two-day event. Every other group is either one day or two days, so they can just—you t- know what I mean? 
like whatever one or two days it is, they take those one or two days and they're much simpler than us. Uh, partially, um, yes, Aaron, I would say if everyone traveled on their own, you're right. But a lot of people don't travel on their own. You know, if you travel with a group of three or four people, basically your group is beholden to the worst schedule of everyone combined. Very true. So, um, and a lot of people do travel. Anybody who's traveling by car is probably traveling that way, or at least I would say maybe 75% of the vehicle travelers are carpooling to some degree or another. Even so, if you're any- flying, the travel day, you know, like say you're coming for an event that's just on Wednesday or Thursday, like you probably took the day off like before and the day after for even a flight, which means, you know, three days in the middle of the week is gone. Yeah. Not taking into consideration the people that play multiple games. Right. All around. I just hope they, in the short term, like there's a lot of long-term issues, but in the short term it would make my life, and I'm sure a lot of other people's, a million times easier if they would just switch the Final Thrones 1.0 Joust tournament from Thursday to Friday. One of the things um, I did the last two years was I chose not to go to Gen Con. Because, as we said, you know, people have stuff going on. The the ability to go to both events for some people is just very difficult. So in 2013 and 2014, I just didn't go to Gen Con. And the weekend I chose to travel for, you know, large-scale tournaments was World Championship Weekend. Well, 2015, I decided I want to go to Gen Con. It's 2.0 release. I want my wife to be able to go and see what it's all about, so on and so forth, and have a good time, you know. And... You know, if they continue to do this expanded, you know, schedule that takes up three work days, I can guarantee you after 2015, I will, I will have to go back to the place of one or the other, not both. If this schedule keeps up, this will be probably my last world, and I'll just do Gen Con every year. It's going to be a one or the other thing for me as well. And news continues to abound. We have a spoiler article, or preview article, I suppose, uh, from FFG on 2nd Edition yet again. Uh, there's not much new, really, in the way of mechanical news, but we get quite a few new cards. Um, they kind of detail the challenges, uh, and interspersed in the middle of these paragraphs point out uh, essentially that dominance and taxation phases uh, still work the same. Yeah. It basically all just looks the same. We have the same three challenges. Uh, they're listed in the same order on the card um, and do the same thing. Good. Yeah. But is intrigue still worth it? Um, I think it is after turn one. Uh, turn one, since those uh, reserve values that we've seen so far are all well below the starting hand size, plus the two that you're going to draw for turn one, I think it likely that many people are going to have to ditch a card or two anyway to reserve. After that, the flow of cards in versus those going out is probably going to be similar-ish enough that you could hit them with the intrigue challenge and feel that it's useful and not they're not just losing a card they would have lost anyway. But it it definitely downplays it on turn one. 
I've often felt in 1.0 that intrigue is the most important challenge, and I just am curious to see how much of that carries over. Uh, the bigger we push characters, the more important military challenges get. Also, that seems to increase the importance of claim. Right. Which, you know... Is the military challenge? challenge? Yeah. Well, no, but, like, how much claim is... Right. If I'm, oh. spe- if I'm spending seven gold on a dude, um, two claim means a lot more. Well, depending Certainly. on if I was able to afford another character. From the plots we've seen so far, that may be the only character that you c- could afford that turn. Well, right, but... In which like, case, even one claim is going to be a problem. Exactly, so that's what I'm saying. Like, one claim, one claim is big, two claim seems like it could just be ridiculous. Yeah, so I think military probably goes up slightly just because intrigue goes down and that that moves some of your character usage away. Do, does anything we know so far about second edition change the early impact or, or later game impact of the power challenge at all? Um, no. Yeah. Yeah, so really we already had one challenge, the power challenge that people felt was uh, poor on turn one, to say the the least, uh, and then two that were vastly superior. And now, now we've gotten another one. I feel added into the poor option. It's it's very interesting to see the game push hard to military challenges early. I hope there's never a, a Siege of Winterfell type build. So I didn't like. I, I mean, to this day in one point, unless I'm playing Stark or there's some other effect that I'm worried about triggering. I just generally don't care about military. Characters are so cheap and it's so easy to have a big board that losing a couple chuds usually is just something I just do. Like I lost my carrion bird and my uh refugee. Next. Like until late game when you really start whittling stuff down, I don't feel like military is that big a deal in 1.0. So I'm kind of up for this. Yeah, it certainly seems like it's going to be much more valuable. I have to say the more I see the backs of those new cards, I like them. Yeah, me too. I'm kind of actually going the other direction on the card backs, which is odd, but I'm definitely growing to, to like the uh, the new template on the front more and more, so it'll all be good. Might all well be in sleeves, so that's all I'll see anyway. Let's talk our seven new characters. Yeah, yeah, we've got some, some good ones here. Uh, when we were pre-chatting earlier, um, I think it came down to me reading the characters, didn't it? Yep. Okay. So we've got Stark up first, and let's let's lay him on us one at a time. Uh, going through the article here, it looks like we hit Eddard Stark first, uh, because they actually break down his icons and such. Uh, of course, he's a unique Stark character. He's seven cost, a military and a power icon, five strength. He has the Lord and Small Council traits. He has Renown, and he has a Reaction ability. After a challenge is initiated against you, stand Eddard Stark. The very first thing I want to mention about him is that he does also have Reminder text uh, in parentheses and italics and a different font after his Renown keyword, which I love. Uh, reminder text, it doesn't have to be on every card, but on those that have some spare room, is something that I begged for forever from FFG, and I'm glad to see that they finally changed their mind. Not for me, but for new new players getting in. It's such a boon. So Renown works almost exactly the same way. Except the May. Right. Mays are big in Thrones. Indeed, indeed. It definitely solves some of the uh, tournament issues there. So do we like him? 
I think so. Man, just initiated at you? I mean, he's he's going to be good in Joust and a beast in Melee. Uh, I think he's good. I feel like for a lot of the seven strength guys we've seen, his strength is a little low. Weren't most of the others six or seven? Um, I don't remember now. I feel like Danny was just five. Did we see any other? Um, well, in Tywin is six, but you're not getting multiple okay. uses out of him. That's true. The multiple uses, I think, is why I like him. A big part of the concern for me with these big characters is using two or three small characters. You just get more things to use. One big character has a limited amounts it can be used in. So I like that he can be used multiple times. I think he's really good, and especially given the fact that they've showed us a plot that's going to reduce him, given that he has the Lord trait, it makes that 7 a lot less daunting. I mean, outside of the fact that it can be canceled, it's even better than Vengeful, because you don't even have to lose the challenge. Very true. Agree. Yeah. Seems sweet. The different word reaction I think we had seen in passing on some of the other previewed cards just uh, seems to be the updated uh, phrasing of a response uh, to bring it in line with the, the newer games. The why, in particular, they decided to change that uh, on the other games or now on Thrones, I, I don't know, but it is what it is. It's fine. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Next card? Sure. All right. Sends us to Rob Stark. Uh, now he's going to be six cost, military and power, five strength. He's just a lord. He has renown with no reminder text. And reaction after a Stark character you control is sacrificed or killed, stand each character you control limit once per round. Um, assuming that sacrifice means what I'm used to it being um, from magic. This makes sense, and I'm I'm actually glad to have that split up. In in magic, I could kill my opponent's character or destroy it, rather, in that game. But if I'm ever needing to do it myself, I am sacrificing that character. And in magic, you can force your opponent to sacrifice stuff as well to essentially get around immunity-style effects, because then the player is doing it instead of the opponent. Um, but it, I think splitting that up is going to be much, much better for clarity going forward. Do they point out anywhere if sacrifice is to the dead pile or discard pile? Not it's that I've seen it, but yeah, I would assume. That was my assumption as well. I just didn't know if it was clarified. Yeah, I, I had not I seen it anywhere. I don't think we've actually seen a card with the word sacrifice on it yet. Like beyond, like a card that sacrifices itself, you know what I mean? Uh, not that I remember seeing, no, uh-uh. We're just it, sort of speculating, we're assuming that's what it means at all. <laughs> yeah. The ability seems friggin' sweet, though. I'm so happy it's limit once per phase. I mean, between Rob and that Eddard, you're gonna, you can have some trouble going up against Stark. They're gonna get a lot of use out of their characters. A little bit of a Wait, what? Two at once. Go ahead, Greg. I was gonna say, what do you think about the art? It's a little different. Uh, it's hard to tell. So small, but Rob definitely looks older in it to me than I was expecting. Yeah, that was the first thing that caught my eye, yeah. and it was just Rob looks older than Eddard. Yeah, he <laughs> looks like he's got this weird comb over and stuff. He looks like he's about forty-five, while Eddard looks like thirty-five. Yep, pretty much. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one. I wasn't gonna bring it up, but you are totally right. Well, they certainly made Catelyn look older than any of the other versions of her 
in 1.0. Mm-hmm. I think what what made me bring it up is I'm actually not an art guy. I most of the time I just don't care. I don't notice it. I don't think about it, you know, and, and I had pulled up this article and I mentioned, you know, about 10 minutes ago that I didn't read most of it and I didn't, you know, but the art actually caught my eye and I don't mean to like bash the game or anything, but that particular art didn't seem appropriate for Rob Stark. So like him being able to stand himself is a good way to mitigate again, the sheer expensiveness of him as a character. And it seems like Stark is getting stand. So now we looked at a, a six cost last time when we saw Jon Snow. How how would you say that these two stack up? I mean, which one is worth more at a six cost? Jon's more integral to whatever deck he's going to be in because he's in basically every challenge, right? Yeah, 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 pretty much. That's the way that I felt, and it almost made me say that Rob probably, I don't know, he he seems like he's a little overcosted relative to Jon. Wait, right. Go for it. What was John again? I realized I wasn't on that podcast, and you know I haven't memorized all the different cards. Whenever a knight, when he's standing, he's standing. When he's standing, right? I thought it was when a knight's watch is attacking. Yeah, when a knight's watch is attacking, he's part of it. Yep, right. Yeah, but he has to be standing. I think so. I might be making that part up. Okay. No, I'm I'm not. He's not. I mean, you made the comment that he's in every challenge, which isn't true. Well, he's in every challenge that has a knight's watch character. Right. No, attacking challenge. Attacking challenge. Right, right. Okay. There's a lot of you extra know. use characters going around. Well, there ha- again, there has to be for it to be that much cost, right? Yeah, I would think so. All right. Well, does that send us on to our next one? Yep. All right. This is going to be Catelyn Stark. Four cost, intrigue and power, four strength. She's House Tully, Lady, and the Seven. And while Caitlyn Stark is participating in a challenge, your opponents cannot trigger card abilities. Uh, Worse Brian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's all stuff that's predictable on the board that you would be able to see if it's an ability rather than the events. But I think that's still potent. And it's also the first intrigue icon we've seen out of the Stark stuff. So uh, she'll be coveted for that, if nothing else, I think. Yeah, but she can't stop saves anymore. Well, she never could, but you know what I mean. Are they not card abilities? Well, no, they are, but she's doesn't have a military icon. Oh, right, right. And it's only while she's participating. Fair. Right. Well, do we know... Do we really know anything? Are they even going to have saves? Do we know that there are saves? Uh, we know that Arya, who's in a spoiler article, reads that when she comes into play, attach as a duplicate the top card of your deck face down. Okay, so we do know duplicates, so we assume duplicates are saves. Okay. Like, yeah. we're, we're, and we're assuming largely, it seems at this point, that this is gonna be the same general game with clarified rules and an expanded gold pool. Like, yeah. and attachments that are playable. We'd keep the name duplicates and then have it do something else. Yeah. Um, so. She'll see play. Yeah, I think, oh, yeah, I think definitely. she'll be quite good at a guess. I mean, if if I had a, a cat that did this in first edition, I would be looking at playing her. I mean, she's up against some stiff competition in the jumper, but I would still be looking at it. Alright, I guess that sends us on to the last of the start cards already. Man, this one's Vanguard of the North. Sorry guys, it's the least exciting one here at the end. Uh, four cost, military icon, four strength. It's an army. It has no attachments. 
And while player has a war plot revealed, Vanguard of the North does not kneel when declared as an attacker in a military challenge. Slightly different. So, Aaron, all challenges, right? Yes. Thank you. (laughs) It's a mini flank. Yeah, sort of, sort of. Um, but it's only in the one challenge, which is the bummer, and it has no attachments, and I'm betting attachments are going to be the main way to add icons again, and I I don't know that we're going to see, uh, you know, Merchant of the Greenblood pop up. It specifically says as an attacker in a military challenge, doesn't it? Yep. Uh, right, right. So even if he got That's the icon, he's kneeling for it. So it's ultra mini, because you... Well, somebody also has to specifically have a war plot revealed. Yeah, and no deadly, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, not that we know deadly exists. I don't think we've actually seen deadly, which would it doesn't isn't a surprise. It was a bit of a rules nightmare. It's what Stark does, though, right? I mean, we don't know if Stark does that anymore. No, no, no. I'm saying it. it it's a military guy that's good in military challenges. Yeah, but we don't know if that's what Stark does at all. I mean, this would sure seem to point that direction. They, That's so, what I'm getting at. Yeah, none of, none of the cards that we've seen, except for Cat, have intrigue icons. So yeah, but that the, rules that out as being a theme for them. It might be an icon string, but it doesn't mean it's like killing stuff as the health string. Though expensive star cards, and we've seen the two big ones, I think, are stand cards, not kill stuff cards. Right, and I don't. I'm yeah, not necessarily but, saying that it's kill effects. I'm saying. Winning military challenges. Yeah, just right. They look very efficient in challenges. Out of the four start cards we got, three of them can participate in multiple challenges. Rob may let several more characters do it. Right. I I think that's a without seeing the rest of the box, but just in a general nutshell, I think that's probably going to be a very good sign for for Stark and 2.0. That's a lot of potential efficiency. Onto your house. To Lannister, to the best house, I assume. It's it's going to take me a while to get used to seeing them in primarily red. Um, but here we go. First up, Tywin Lannister. He's seven cost, all three icons, six strength. He's a lord. He has renown. Tywin Lannister gets plus one strength for each gold in your gold pool, and he has a plus two gold bonus on him. Huh. I'm mostly like it. It feels a little less than uh, any of the six costers we've seen so far, and less than Eddard, but Tricon with Renown is cool. I mean, he's going to win one challenge pretty handily, it seems like. Maybe. Depends on how much gold you have left. I mean, going off of the plots we've seen, again, like, it's not like I'm playing Tywin off of one of those plots. And having gold left over. In fact, most of those plots, I actually, yeah, the only one we've seen so far that I could afford him off of is Noble Cause, and that uses up all the gold. The other ones I can't quite afford him, so then I'm stuck u- using up gold from locations. Maybe some characters, obviously Tywin looks like he gives a gold bonus, so hopefully there's still a moneylender or something equivalent. Um... I just I just don't know that I'm gonna have much extra gold sitting around. Sure, but I mean, how many seven cost characters are you assuming you're running? Because I feel like maybe. you're gonna be running one or two a deck. Yeah, maybe one of him. So if you're only paying that once, that means like if but you know you have to build a gold curve to be able to afford him. That means other turns you should be sitting on some extra gold. 
And you're going to have to be in order to play events. Yeah. I but at that point, do you say that your deck's efficiency is better off designing it to, you know, not worry about the seven coster and not put the one copy in there? Sure, but that is absolutely not the intent of the game, right? <laughs> it is. But <laughs> maybe I mean, you look at antithetical to that. Even even aside from that, you know, even if that works out, then it's turn two before I'm really getting that benefit from him, either from having spare gold left over for his ability or from getting the plus two gold bonus. Sure. Um, so right. He's just a big body with renown for one turn. Which Adder does better on turn one and then is in multiple challenges going forward. I don't know. He's, I'll, I'll have to play him out, but in seeing him right after these other ones, he feels a little subpar. So just looking at him, you'd rather pay seven costs for the King's Road one, right? From 1.0? Um, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. That's, yes. Yes. I immediately thought of poor Tywin from 1.0, yeah. oh, sorry. Yeah, I that sure would be would. overpowered right now, it seems like. So I would seven for four strength with that ability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's also, like, if there's any stealth. Have we seen stealth yet? Do we, are we sure stealth exists? Um, you know, I do not recall seeing stealth, actually. Well, if stealth exists, his value goes way the hell down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. If it doesn't, I think, like, he can, he's reasonably likely to be able to. Oh, wait, we did stealth. see stealth, right? Because we saw Varys today. Oh, okay. Well, we haven't seen it on a military, at least. Oh, you're right. You're right. I f- almost forgot about Varys. So, yes, we know stealth exists. Alright. So, if, if it's not especially popular around military, especially out of the box, I could see him being quite good as he, as he can come out one turn and usually hold his own. You just have to defend military that turn. And thereafter, he should have more ways to support himself, right? Like, you would use him for whatever challenge, and you'd have whatever events you wanted to use with the extra gold you had, because once you've used them, you might as well spend that gold, so on and so forth. As long as that event's not something you want to play in the middle of a challenge, because then his strength goes down. I don't know. There's a lot of variables <laughs> that's hard to judge till we see the whole box. So I think that's time Cersei. to move on to Cersei then. <laughs> All right. Yeah. She uh she matches up very well with uh Catelyn here stat wise. Also four for four, yeah. intrigue and power. She's a lady and a queen. And while Cersei Lannister is attacking during an intrigue challenge, raise the claim value on your revealed plot card by one. I think I dig it. As you made the the uh, comparison there to Aryan in version one, she's probably a little less uh, awesome than that, but I think still good. No power. Yeah. Oh, I think she's and either going to be completely bonkers or almost useless. I think she stands reason to be much better than, say, the first Ed core Cersei. Oh, I think oh, this one. Yeah, but... this one's bound to actually be playable, raising claim every time she attacks. We've yet to I see mean, a card that's in both that's better in. You know what I mean? The first, yeah. the first core was terrible. Hmm. First core set cards. Well, we we saw Drogo, right? We oh, or Jum- part Jumper of Drogo, right? Can well, we don't know what he is. We'll compare that later. So that's debatable, right? Well, until we know what it does. The tall order be better than him, though. Yeah, Jumper Drogo is one of my five favorite cards in the game. Um, I don't know. I like this Catelyn. Uh, this Catelyn. This uh, Cersei. I feel like she's either going to completely break intrigue challenges by turn two or three, or intrigue's not going to be that important and we're just not going to care about her. Hey guys, quick question, let me interrupt and we'll hopefully you can catch this. How much longer are we going to discuss these? I've got the uh, 
I've got the the wifey saying she wants me for other things, so Greg wants to have the sex. We've uh, got um, there are two <laughs> cards left. We've got two cards and then there's us for props and sex. Okay. Yep. Um so Cersei then. I I like her. I sure wouldn't give her any particular rating right now, but I it stands to reason that she will be very playable. I'd agree with that. Send us on to the next card. Now, I know Greg and I have talked about this card uh, before, and so it will be interesting hearing his take here on the podcast where I can berate him for being wrong uh, on air. So this is the, the tickler. Now, he is a two-cost, two-strength unique, so it's interesting to see somebody at that lower end of the curve. He has military and intrigue icons, so he looks like a first edition character efficiency-wise, so that's pretty cool. Uh, and then dominance action. Kneel the tickler to discard the top card of an opponent's deck. Then you may choose one copy of that card and discard it from play. And I straight up say ally. this is a bad card. Oh, it is an ally. It is an ally. Of course, we haven't seen ally hate yet, so who knows how that's going to be. But I say his ability is bad. He's He may still be playable just based on cost, icons, and, and strength, but the ability is bad. Great out of the box, shit later. It, it I mean, will... really, that's, I feel the same way as Aaron, that, you know, if we're playing in a tournament where the only thing legal is a core set and you have three copies of the core set, then, yeah, he's a decent card at that point in time because, like, I mean, you can't, you can't separate the fact that it looks like he's still going to be efficient relative to the cost curve. And, again, I just don't have the whole cost curve in front of me, so I can't say that with assurance, but, yeah, you, you know... If I'm just blowing up random cards from time to time with it, you know, it seems worth it. But you're also not using him in any challenges, and you're not killing him for military claim if so you're doing that. The spoiler article had this card where you could basically reorder an opponent's deck. That's going to make this card good. I'm pretty sure that was a Terrell card, but whatever. Yeah. We know we have banners, so I don't think yeah. it matters. Potentially. Yeah, because if that's loyalty, then the tickler could be played in that yeah. other... In uh, Tyrell. Yeah, that was what was that card called? Uh, um, Baron the Maiden Fair. Yeah, Baron the Maiden Fair. But like, I feel like Baron the Maiden Fair alone makes this at least solid. In that's a fair point. Corset it's a, only. No, Maybe it's a few chapter packs in. I think for quite a while in that case, because um, I'm just assuming economy is going to be fragile, and if you can use this to blow up a bunch of economy, that's a very effective joke. Next guy. All right, that kicks us actually over to the uh, article, or, well, video, really, from Team Covenant, who uh, really have been getting the scoops lately, it seems, and because they also got a preview card. They brought Varus to the table. He appears to be neutral, I guess. It's a little trippy seeing this brown color uh, instead of my usual gray, uh, but... He doesn't appear to have a house crest, so neutral it is. Six cost, intrigue icon only, only three strength, which hurts for that six cost. Lord, small council, and spy, he does have stealth, and interrupt when the dominance phase ends. Remove Varus from the game to discard each character from play. Interesting to see them use remove from the game right out of the core set. Do we know if interrupt is forced? Um, I would 
Oh, I would think not, but I don't know. The other games like Cthulhu have like forced response or forced interrupt. Okay. Um, so assuming they're kind of drawing things into parallel with those games, I would yeah, say the same no. thing with Star Wars. Yeah. It, okay, so if it's forced, he's terrible. If not, I think he's kind of amazing. Because it was also, and I guess we'll talk about that after we go over Varys more, mentioned that Valar will not be in the corset. I mean, assuming you keep him alive. he's n- If you are, like, on your last legs, so to speak, he's not going to help you get back in unless you can also field another character. If you could also play the tickler. <laughs> right, because he's just efficient, not for using his ability. Right, right no, who cares? You just... Sometimes you're going to need cheap dudes, right? Yeah. We're assuming you still want to set up hard. Yeah, I can't think of any reason we've seen so far why you wouldn't. So, His threat of activation is amazing. Yes, oh, I agree. And I think that he certainly makes the value of uh, the reserve on your plot that much more important if he's on the board, and he increases the value of intrigue challenges. I think he means that we're definitely going to get some kind of discard pile recursion early. Because otherwise, oh, why not just from the game? Yeah, otherwise, yeah. why not just make him be discarded? Well, you want him to be used more than once, otherwise, you have him be killed, right? So, well, so because he's in the core set, right? So he's going to be evergreen. So if you're ever going to have a card that is recursion, you want to make sure that it doesn't apply to this guy. That's also true. That's a fair point too. I don't think it means that we're getting massive amount of recursion tomorrow. Hmm. Yeah, that's fair enough. Remove from the game definitely means that they want him to be able to be used more than once, but they don't want you to be able to reuse one of him more than once. Yes? It'll be interesting to see how they define that. I think the assumption is if he's removed from the game, you can't can't play another copy. I don't see why not. I mean, I assume it would be basically like it is in first edition, where you could. Yeah, I would think so. You remove from the game, otherwise just put him in the damn dead pile. Yeah. I don't know. Well, maybe I'm getting warped by my experience in other games. There's so yeah, I few think so. Yeah, remove from the game is you just take that specific instance of the card and remove it from the game. That's it. So I can't imagine they would try and apply dead pile rules to remove from the game. Yeah, that sounds unnecessarily complex. I don't know. I think he's a super bomb card, and I might run three of them in a lot of decks just because because I want that ability to come back if things go wrong. You get six power on that uh, editor, and that's what's going to win you the game. In two turns, I might want to play him that turn and, you know, use him as my comeback. He's certainly the anchor if you want to make any kind of heavy... In- yeah, and any kind of heavy intrigue deck, though. He's he's going to be an anchor. Yep. Oh, yeah. Almost certainly has to be. So he's going to pair well with Cersei. For yep. sure. All right, right, props and stops. (laughs) Okay, that was eerie timing. We should probably redo that with just one of us. (laughs) You want to do this, Greg? Uh, No, I want us to do the echo. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so yeah, I'll start with myself. Two slops. Uh, first slop I've already mentioned, which was at Worlds last year, I pretty much made a fool of myself when, uh, I thought I wasn't going to be able to get in it, get into the joust or melee or whichever event it was because I wasn't on the list because I hadn't filled out the email and 
at the end of the day, I was the idiot there. So slop goes to me for this. The second slop goes to me because I told my wife that I would be, you know, um, on this podcast for 45 minutes to an hour since we're doing shorter episodes. <laughs> and <laughs> we're now almost two hours. So slop yep. goes to me because I have taken away our entire evening, which is our first evening without kids in five days. So I think it's a slop to us in general. Yeah, I was hoping to so much edit the show. The last couple have been much better than this. <laughs> um, also, just a note on your first slop. We were all at Worlds, and you in no way made a fool of yourself, so stop being so hard on yourself. No? No one's going to agree with me? No. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's Greg. I mean, read your emails. <laughs> uh. Let's see. I'm going to jump out there, and I'm going to... Gosh, what am I going to throw some props out to? Wrapped up uh, the season of S.H.I.E.L.D. It was a pretty solid ending. Uh, they definitely threw out some surprises, uh, so it was pretty sweet. Uh, but I still need to, to wrap up uh, some of the other shows that I was watching so far this season. I'm going to get around to Gotham at some point, and I let myself slip on the flash, so I need to wrap that. I'm going to slop computers in general, or technology in general. I was in the top eight, or, yeah, top eight of the Octagon tournament. I went to play my opponent one day, and the Transformer lit on fire, and I lost service. Whoa. He, uh, he's a German dude, so we managed to reschedule with not an inconsiderable, not a eh, whatever, small amount of trouble. So we played a two-and-a-half-hour game. I was playing... Uh, the HOD Bane deck, just because I wanted to retire it, I wanted it to go out in style. With that Octagon game, two and a half hour game, I have a 14 strength Bane, I have literally everything you could possibly want with that deck, I'm closing in the next two turns. But at that point, because it took, that deck takes a while to go, get going, we were tied 9 power to 9 power, when Octagon decided to update and kicked us both. So my sure win became a Womp Womp, the game ended with us 9-9. Nine, nine. We flipped a coin. I lost. I am now eliminated from the Octagon tournament. I lost brutal. one game. I lost two coin flips. Oof. <laughs> Just brutal. Yeah. So, fuck you, technology. <laughs> well, I'll throw a prop out there to something that I'm probably way late to the party on. I had started reading the first quarter of the book Stormfront like, maybe six months ago, something like that, and just never got around to finishing it, and our very own Kyle Vansel gave me the audiobook of it, oh, nice. and in my brutal commutes, I binge-listened to the entire thing in less than a week, and it was kick-ass. Ooh. Binge-listening definitely uh, reminds me of another prop here. That's to the podcast Serial, if anybody else... Has heard of that one or not? It's a spinoff from This American Life. It's a 12 episode show, uh, delving into a, uh, investigating a murder from 15 years ago and uh, a guy that was put in jail for it and examining the, uh, the evidence on both sides. Um, I, I hate to spoil the end for you, but hey, this is real life, folks. There's not 
really the kind of neat bow on it conclusion that you'd get on an episode of CSI. Uh, there's just a lot of back and forth and on a very muddy case, but it was fascinating to listen to. So I, I binged that this week. Um, I have a prop, and that is for the new Mad Max movie. Hmm. I believe it's the best action movie I've seen in the theaters and probably ever. It's quite a statement. Yeah, really. Um, it's just, it's its own genre of action movies. And I don't even really want to compare it to the old Mad Max movies, even though, you know, uh, George Miller carried through some themes of stunt work and such. But it is just, uh, I, I saw the Avengers. It was okay. It was, I mean, it was solid. It was what I expected to be. And then there was Mad Max Fury Road, which was this crazy, insane ride that I left the theater just saying, oh, my God. Okay. I'm still curious, but... I mean, I'm not watching cool. I also want to slop men's clubs, because really stop. Or not men's clubs, men's uh, rights clubs. There, there you go. I was going to say, I want to prop men's clubs, like... If there was a Diogenes club today that I could go visit, I would be all over that. Yeah, I want to slap men's rights clubs, because just stop. Props to anybody that catches what the Diogenes club reference was. Bueller? I'll be looking for that in the in the comments to the podcast. Alright guys, I'm checking out or else I'm going to be in the doghouse for the next year. You won't be in the doghouse, Greg. You'll be in the... See